Well, it's a joy to be here. I don't know quite how to take it. The only time I got applause was when you said Adelaide. So uh, <laughs> I take that very personal. Um, <laughs> so I know what to say tonight to get an amen. I just say Adelaide and you say amen. Okay, so that's how that works. Um, Pastor Jeff, thank you for your, uh, first of all, for your invitation to be here and for your warm introduction. I only wish my mother could have heard that introduction, so thank you uh, for that. Uh, you know, they say behind every great man is a surprised woman. So, uh, <laughs> well, what a wonderful turnout we have. And for those of you who have come from any distance, thank you for making the commitment and the sacrifice uh, to be here. It means a great deal. To me, to be able to minister to you and for those who are a part of your church family who you're able to minister to on a weekly basis, it's a joy to stand in this pulpit where you minister the Word of God so faithfully. Um, I was asked, as I was invited to speak for this conference, to address the I Am statements in the Gospel of John. Um, I'll just have to tell you by way of introduction, my favorite book in the Bible is the Gospel of John, and I've preached through the Gospel of John three different times at three different churches, and I have spent have spent 12 years of my life uh, preaching through the Gospel of John. I've named my youngest son John, so uh, the Gospel of John in, in many ways has shaped and formed my understanding of salvation and who Jesus Christ is and what he has called me to do. So my desire is that during this conference, um, these I Am statements could be of great encouragement to your life and to your soul. And there are seven of these, and I only get to speak five times. So uh, we'll look at the first five and um, I think our cup will be filled to overflowing uh, just to look at the first five I Am statements. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of John. By the end of the weekend, it'll just naturally flop open to the Gospel of John. Uh, John chapter 6 and verse 35, I want us to look at the first I Am statement in the Gospel of John. John chapter 6. In verse 35, I want to begin by just reading this one verse, no doubt a text with which you are very familiar, and we will just camp out here tonight, and we will seek to unpack what is in this one verse, John chapter 6, and verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. It was the great theologian of the 5th century, Augustine, uh, this theologian who really stood between the apostles in the 1st century and the reformers in the 16th century, Augustine of Hippo who stated in the opening line of his famous autobiography, Confessions, where he virtually invented a new literary genre known as the autobiography. 
Augustine begins confessions with this statement. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in you. Augustine was acknowledging that every human heart is restless and can never find true satisfaction in the things of this world until it comes to rest in Jesus Christ. There is an inner craving within you and there is an inner craving within me, a longing for happiness that will never be met by possessions in this world, by any position in this world, by any prestige in this world, except it be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an inner search for fulfillment that can never be met by the applause or the accolades of this world. True peace and true happiness that your heart and my heart yearns for. And true joy and contentment can only be found exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. This truth comes through loud and clear in this text that we are looking at tonight. is the first of the seven I Am statements. And as you're familiar with the Gospel of of John, there is a, a backbone that runs through the Gospel of John that the entire book hangs on. All the flesh and muscles of the Gospel of John hang on this skeleton, this backbone, which are the seven I Ams of the Gospel of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. And I am the way and the truth and the life. The entire Gospel of John really unfolds and wraps around these seven I am statements. And our focus tonight is specifically upon the first I am statement. It's found right here, John 6, verse 35. And it is found in the midst of a very lengthy discourse. The Gospel of John is known for the discourses that are found in it. The Gospel of Luke is known for, um, is known, known for the parables. And the Gospel of Matthew is known for its Old Testament citations. The Gospel of Mark is known really for the action that is found in the life of Christ. But the Gospel of John contains the extraordinary theological profundity of the sermons that are taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this, this I am statement is really found in the midst of this lengthy discourse. I, I wish we had time to unpack all that is in this discourse, but just for you to know where it is found in this gospel. And in one way or another, everything in this this discourse of the living bread from heaven 
is really wrapped around the epicenter, which is verse 35. So tonight, depending upon the amount of time that we have, meaning how long I take with this, <laughs> um, there are five or six things to which I want to draw your attention as we dig down into verse 35. I want you to note first the deity of Jesus Christ. In verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And this statement begins as dramatically as any statement can begin because when Jesus says, I am, he is making an explicit claim to be truly God in human flesh. Now, Jesus is identifying himself with the name that God gave at the burning bush to Moses, as Moses appeared at the burning bush, and the voice from the bush said, Remove your sandals, for the ground upon which you stand is, is holy ground. And God revealed himself to Moses by giving him a name that is perhaps the greatest of all the names of God. It is the name, I am who I am. It comes from the verb to be. And when God says, I am who I am, it is a statement of an attribute of God that I find to be the most profound attribute of God of all. It is the attribute of the aseity of God. A-E-I-S-T-Y. The aseity, or I-T-Y, the aseity of God which means that God is dependent upon no one nor anything. And that we are entirely dependent upon God for everything. And He is dependent upon no one or nothing for anything. That God does not need you, nor does He need me. Because there are no holes in his soul. He is perfectly content within himself. And he is autonomous and independent. And for God to say, I am who I am, means that God is forever the same. Not I am, or not I was who I am, or I will be who I am. But I am who I am means that God is immutable. That God is never changing, God is never increasing, God is never decreasing, that God is forever the same, and that everything is flowing from God. I am who I am. It is a statement of the aseity of God. And when I teach on the attributes of God, I actually begin with this divine attribute. That God is the creator of all that there is, that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Romans 11, verse 36. And Jesus now takes this divine name. A name so holy that when Moses approached the burning bush, that Moses had to remove the sandals from his feet. Jesus now takes this name unto Himself. And in so doing, Jesus is claiming 
eternal, absolute deity. That he possesses all of the attributes of God, all of the personhood of God, that Jesus Christ is truly God. This is where we part ways with every cult and every religion upon planet earth. They are all apostate and they are all false. Because they see Jesus other than as He reveals Himself to us in this verse. Here, Jesus claims to be the thrice-holy, heaven-sent, virgin-born, only-begotten, truly divine Son of God who is co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. This statement begins with the deity of Jesus Christ. And this is the anchor point for all of Christianity. This is the cornerstone for all of Christianity. And only one who is fully God could make and fulfill the claim that he will make in this verse. Only one who is fully God can be the bread of life. Only one who is fully God can fulfill this claim that if you will come to me and if you will believe in me, you will never thirst again the rest of your life. That one bite and you are satisfied forever. One sip and you will never thirst again for the rest of your life and throughout all the ages to come. Only one who is truly God could give lasting salvation and eternal satisfaction. No other man, no other woman, no other object, no other institution, no other position, no other possession could fulfill such a claim. This is where it begins, with the deity of Jesus Christ. He is the second member of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead who stepped out of eternity and into time to become our Savior and Lord. Number one, the deity of Christ. Number two, the humility of Christ. As we look at verse 35, Jesus says, I am, that's the deity of Christ, the bread of life. Here is the humility of Christ. This metaphor, I am the bread of life, speaks to the lowly humiliation of Jesus coming down out of heaven into this world. This statement, I am the bread of life, conveys that Jesus came out of heaven to enter this world. He's making a, compa a comparison in the larger context of this discourse. He is comparing himself with the manna that came down out of heaven to feed the Israelites every day. And as the manna came down out of heaven and fell onto the ground... 
So Jesus Christ has come down out of heaven to the lowest part of this earth. The key repeat, repeated phrase is in this chapter, John chapter 6, is out of heaven. I would encourage you tonight when you go home, before you go to bed, to take a pen and go through John 6 and just underline every time Jesus says, out of heaven. Let me just walk you through it right now. If you have your pen handy, it will be very easy for you to underline this as we go or to write it down in your Bible. In verse 31, Jesus speaks of the bread out of heaven. Do you see that in your Bible? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written, and he now quotes Exodus 16, verse 4, He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. In verse 32, he repeats it twice in one verse. The bread out of heaven. Notice he says, Truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. And the true bread makes the direct allusion to himself. He is the genuine, authentic bread that has come down out of heaven. At this point, it is somewhat veiled. For they say in verse 34, Lord, give us this bread. We want the true bread that has come down out of heaven. And he says, I am the bread of life. In verse 33, he had said it again, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven. And this bread that comes down out of heaven gives life to the world, he says in verse 33. In verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. Do you see that? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. It speaks of the lowly humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come not to to carry out His own agenda. He has come not to pursue His own will. He is in full submission to the authority and the headship of the Father. In His incarnation... The Lord Jesus Christ has humbled Himself to do the will of the Father. In verse 41, He says it again. Or the Jews say it. The Jews were grumbling about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And again in verse 50, This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. It's abundantly clear. A blind man could see this. Like manna that God gave that came down out of heaven. It speaks of the downward descent of the manna from the hand of God to lay on the ground for the Israelites to come along and to pick up Even so, Jesus was sent by the Father and came down out of heaven to lay down His life upon the earth. No one ever started so high and ended up so low as the Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever condescended 
so low. No one ever came down from such a high place and ended up in such a low place. The sovereign became a servant. He condescended from the heights of heaven to the depths of humanity. He descended from the bosom of the Father to the bowels of this earth. The giver of the law was born under the law. The Creator entered His own creation. And He went from being praised to being persecuted. Jesus had to come down out of heaven because we could not pull ourselves up to heaven. Jesus had to come all the way down to to where we are, to our level, if we are to be taken up to His highest level. Jesus had to enter the human race and to step into our shoes and to wear our skin in order to save us. He couldn't just snap His finger and it come about. He had to come down to our lowly level in order to raise us up to the heights of heaven. That's the way that it is. The Son of God became the Son of Man. Jesus came to earth that we might go to heaven. Jesus was born of a virgin that we might be born again. Jesus became the Son of God so that you and I might become sons of God. This is the humility of Jesus. He became the Son of Man so that we might become sons of God. There is nothing that God will ever ask of you for the rest of your life that will ever surpass the humiliation that Jesus Christ took to Himself. There is nothing beneath anyone in this world. There is nothing beneath anyone here tonight that is too low of a service or a ministry for us to undertake as long as we're on this earth. So we've seen the deity of Christ. I am. We have seen the humility of Christ. He is the bread that has come down out of heaven. Third, I want you to note the ability of Jesus Christ. When he says, I am the bread of life, he is speaking metaphorically. He he is speaking with an analogy. And that is to say, he, he is not alluding to a presupposition that He is real bread, that we are to eat physical bread. Rather, He is making a comparison. He is using a figure of speech, a metaphor, an analogy to say that He is like bread. What food and bread is to your body Jesus is to your soul. We cannot live without bread or food. Bread is the source of life. Bread is the sustainer of life. We cannot live without bread. Bread is life-giving. Bread is life-sustaining. Bread is life-satisfying. I mean, this is so... uh, 
interwoven into this chapter, he will repeat it twice again. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. And in verse 51, he says, I am living bread. Without this bread, you are a dead man walking. Without this bread, you have no life. Without this bread, you are dying, and you are ever dying, and you are dead. But with this bread, you have life, you have abundant life, you have eternal life, you have supernatural life. This is saying to us that Jesus is the source of all life. Without this bread, you only have a mere empty, hollow existence. But you have no life. But with this bread, you have eternal life. And that is stated in verse 27, verse 40, verse 47, and verse 51. If you get anything from this chapter, it is that the life that Jesus has come to give is far more than mere physical life. It is eternal life. And the word eternal does not primarily refer to the duration or the length of life, though that is implied. To have eternal life means that you'll live throughout all of the eternities to come, but so also will a lost person exist throughout all of the ages to come. This means far more than having a... Uh, an eternal relationship with God, though that is implied. If you could be a Christian for only five years and then you would lose that life, you would have had only five-year life. If you could be a Christian for ten years and then lose your salvation, you would only have ten-year life. But he gives us eternal life, so what is settled for eternity cannot be undone within time. But that's not the primary emphasis here. The primary emphasis on eternal life is not the duration of life, it is the quality of life. Literally, eternal here, eternal life, refers to simply this, and you ought to write it down if you're taking notes. It means the life of the ages to come. This life, it is, is an out-of-this-world life. Long before you ever go to heaven, heaven has already come to you. And this eternal life is dwelling within you. I used to think when I was a young Christian, I used to think that I could lose my salvation. And that if I could just remain faithful to the end, if I could just step into heaven... God would then give to me eternal life as I step into heaven. And I could just close the door behind me and wipe the sweat off my brow and exhale and go, I made it. But the truth is, eternal life does not begin when you enter into eternity. Eternal life begins the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. And the life that He's come to give us is a quality of life that nothing in this world could ever give to you. 
The life that he has come to give is in reality the life of God in the soul of a man. It's divine life. It's not human life. It's not earthly life on steroids. It is a life that could never come from anything or anyone in this world. It is a life that has come down out of heaven to dwell and to exist within us while we're here upon this earth. If you're familiar with the name George Whitfield, the greatest evangelist who ever lived since the Apostle Paul, the great evangelist of the 18th century Great Awakening and the Evangelical Awakening. He was an Englishman from Gloucester who went to Oxford University and was asked to join a small group Bible study of about eight other students. In this small group Bible study was John Wesley, who would be the founder of the Methodist denomination, Charles Wesley, who would become one of the greatest hymn writers who ever lived. George Whitfield, who would become the greatest evangelist since Paul. Not a bad small group Bible study. Not a single one of them knew the Lord. They met for Bible study. They memorized verses. They prayed together. They fasted. They served. They even tried to inflict self-deprecating punishment to their body. Whatever they could do to commend themselves towards God, they did. And they were the blind leaders of the blind. One day, Charles Wesley handed a book to George Whitfield, who was striving with all of his might, even more than the Wesleys, to pull himself up by his bootstraps to commend himself to God by his own religiosity and by his own spirituality. And the book that Charles Wesley handed to George Whitfield was written by a Scottish preacher, Henry Scrugel. The title of the book was The Life of God and the Soul of a Man. It was a book on the new birth. Truly, truly, I say to you, except one be born again, he will not enter. He will not see the kingdom of God, and he will not enter into the kingdom of God. And George Whitfield read this book, and as a 21-year-old adult, he came to understand and to realize that his position before God would not become reality if he was to find acceptance by what he would do for God, but that what God has done for him but what God would do within him in the miracle of the new birth. And in the course of reading this book, George Whitfield was born again. He spent the rest of his life going from city to city to city, going into town squares and saying, I've come here today to talk to you about your soul. And he would preach the necessity and the nature of the new birth, that you must be born again. A woman once came to George Whitfield and said, Why do you keep saying to us, we must be born again. And Whitfield said, because, dear woman, you must be born again. 
And there's only one way to have the life of God within your soul. And that is for you to be sovereignly and supernaturally regenerated by the Spirit of God and for the life of God to come and be in your soul. This comes through the bread of life. It is abundant life. It is resurrection life. It is new life. It is divine life. The difference between justification and regeneration. Justification is taught in the book of Romans. Regeneration is taught in the gospel of John. Regeneration precedes justification in the order salutis. Justification deals with your legal standing before God. Regeneration deals with the living knowledge of God. Justification is forensic. Regeneration is dynamic. Justification is a courtroom scene. Regeneration is a birthing room. Justification imputes righteousness. Regeneration imparts life. You need far more than a legal standing before God. You need far more than getting out of this line and getting into that line. You need what only Jesus Christ can give you, which is the life of God within your spiritually dead soul. You need far more than a legal standing. You need the life of God. And that comes exclusively through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. This life is the knowledge of God. John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the one true living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is this life that brings us into a personal, vital relationship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ, by the working of the Holy Spirit. It is this life that brings you into union and communion with Jesus Christ. Without this life, you are Lazarus in the tomb. With this life, you come walking out of the tomb. Have you received this life? Are you experiencing this life within your soul? Fourth, I want you to note from this verse the accessibility of Jesus. If this bread is so necessary and so valuable, who among us here tonight could even begin to afford to purchase one bite of this bread. I want you to note that Jesus offers Himself freely, without cost, to those who have no money to buy. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Now here's His accessibility. He who comes to Me will not hunger, and he who believes in me 
will never thirst. In reality, this is the invitation of Jesus Christ offering Himself to those who have no resources whatsoever to come by this life. These are two parallel statements. He who comes to me and he who believes in me. It is saying the same thing twice. It is what we call synonymous parallelism. In which the two lines say the same thing but with different words. To come to Jesus is to believe in Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to come to Jesus. Let's talk about these. What does it mean to come to Jesus? He says, he who comes to me will never hunger. To come to Jesus does not mean to get up out of your seat and walk forward at a meeting. To come to Jesus does not mean to physically walk across the room, nor does it mean to walk to the pastor, nor does it mean to walk into a church. In fact, many came to Jesus physically who never came to Him spiritually. There were many in the crowd this day as Jesus gives the John 6 message, the discourse of life, who would not walk with Him any longer. At the end of this discourse in verse 65 and 66, He tells us that. In fact, one of the twelve of Jesus' own disciples was physically walking the dusty roads of Galilee and and Judea and, and walking with Him from city to city and to Jerusalem who walked with Him physically but never walked with Him spiritually. This has nothing to do with physically putting one foot in front of another and physically walking with Jesus. Many of those who walked with Jesus physically walked into hell when they died. To come to Christ means that you take a spiritual step of faith. And that you decisively entrust your life to Jesus Christ. That you come all the way to Christ. It's not enough merely to come toward Him. It's not enough to see others come to Him. It's not enough to merely think about coming to Him. You and I must take a step of faith and come all the way in our heart and in our soul to Jesus Christ. And this clearly implies that you and I must leave where we have been. You cannot come to Christ and remain in a lifestyle of pursuing sin. That you must turn your back on the world. You must turn your back on pursuing sin in order to turn around 180 degrees. It's like this. You and I were going according to the course of this world. We were hell bound. We were, walk- we were going with the flow, the course of this world. And to come to Christ means that you stop and turn around completely and face the Lord Jesus Christ in a totally different direction. And in that pivotal moment when you turn around, you leave behind the direction that you were once pursuing, and you now turn around to pursue 
Jesus Christ, and it begins with the first step. And it'll never be over. It begins a lifetime journey. Perhaps that's why we call this conference In Step, that you move out and follow Jesus Christ and walk in fellowship with Him. But you cannot remain where you are. You must turn around and now come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, you begin to follow Christ for the rest of your life. You must come to Jesus with a spiritual hunger and thirst. In order to have the guilt of sin removed. And in order to have the forgiveness of sin applied. And in order to have the righteousness of Christ imputed. You must come to Jesus as one who has nothing and who needs everything. You must come to Jesus as one who has nothing but sin and who needs everything except justice. You must come to Jesus as the only one who can save you and the only one who can satisfy you. That's what it means to come to Christ. And in that moment, you become a disciple of Christ. In that defining moment with decisive step of faith, you now become a follower of Jesus Christ. You cannot be passive. You cannot be inactive. You cannot be sitting on the sidelines. You cannot be a spectator. You now are out on the field and you are in the game and you are following Jesus Christ. That's what it means to come to Christ. It also means to believe in Jesus Christ. You see it here in verse 35. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. To believe in Jesus means far more than to believe about Jesus. It means to believe in Jesus. And it is a Greek preposition that is often translated into. That you believe into Jesus Christ. That's a very important distinction. When I flew here, I left Dallas, Texas, flew to Los Angeles, flew from Los Angeles to Auckland, flew from Auckland to Napier, flew from Napier to Auckland, flew from Auckland to Melbourne, flew from Melbourne to Adelaide. I've spent, yeah, you can clap on Adelaide. Uh, yesterday, I was in four airports. Um, that's a lot of security. <laughs> um, but there comes that decisive moment when they issue the call to get onto the plane. I can't stay at the coffee shop. I can't stay seated in a seat. I actually have to get up 
and I have to walk to the gate. And there comes a moment when I have to take a decisive step and put both feet into the plane. I cannot remain at the gate and just look at the plane, stare at the plane. I can't just stand there and look at other people getting onto the plane. I have to literally step into the plane. I can't have one foot at the gate and one foot at the plane, in the plane. It's all or nothing. And when Jesus says that we must believe in him... He is saying you must believe into him and entrust your very soul to him and commit your life to him and make a total, complete, decisive, radical commitment of your life to Jesus Christ or you're left behind. This little, prepos- this little preposition in is makes all the difference in the world. You don't just believe Jesus Christ. People in hell believe Jesus Christ. Trust me. The difference is you and I must believe in Jesus and believe into Jesus. To believe in Jesus is like eating bread. And that is the analogy here. And in fact, he will say in verse 51, later in this discourse, Jesus will say, I am the living bread. I am bread that is alive, that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Verse 53, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself is you would take a piece of bread and put it into yourself and swallow it and digest it such that this bread is now in you. Unless you do that with Jesus, you have no life. This is to say you must receive Jesus Christ. And internalize Jesus Christ by faith. And you must, by faith, bring Him into your soul. In reality, Christ brings Himself into us. But there is our human responsibility to take this bread and and to eat it. And just as we would take a glass and drink it into ourselves, so we must drink His blood which is a metaphorical picture of believing in Jesus Christ. It is that personal. It it is that internal. It, It is that much a part of the very being and fiber of your life that you now have Jesus Christ living inside of you. And as He has come, He has brought His life. This is the accessibility of Jesus Christ. He offers Himself to each and every one of us here tonight through the pages of this text and through the verses of this text. 
And if you have never believed upon Jesus Christ, if you have never received Him into your life, this very moment He is saying to you, if you will come to Me, if you will believe in Me, you will never hunger and you will never thirst again. Fifth, I want you to note the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because here in verse 35... He makes two extraordinary statements of which I have already addressed. But look at verse 35 one more time. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me, now here it is, will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus intentionally puts this in the negative so that it will have more impact to our ears. It's a figure of speech known as litotes, L-I-T-O-T-E-S. It's what Paul uses in Romans 1, verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a figure of speech in which you state the positive by putting it in the negative. It has impact. If you were to come to me after this service is over and you were to ask me, tell me about your wife, Dr. Lawson. If I would to say, well, I just want you to know this. I'm not ashamed of her. You'd go, what an odd way to brag about your wife. I just want you to know I'm not ashamed of her. Yet this is what Jesus, how Jesus chooses to communicate. For Paul to say, for example, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He is saying, I'm excited for the gospel. I'm enthusiastic for the gospel. I am fired up for the gospel. That's what that means. You state the positive by putting it in the negative, and it has a a two-edged sword side to it. It has double impact. It, 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 It rings within us, to put it that way. And for Jesus to say, He will not hunger, is His way of staying, saying that the deepest longings of your soul and of your heart will be totally, completely fulfilled in Him. You will have peace like a river that will flood your soul. You will have joy unspeakable and full of glory. You will have a hope that surpasses all comprehension. You will be satisfied, you'll be sustained, you'll be strengthened. Listen, to believe in Jesus Christ is not like taking bad medicine in order to get well, where it's just something that you endure and go through because there's no other way to be made well. This medicine tastes awful. The greatest 
thing you could ever do with your life is to believe upon Jesus Christ. Even if there was no heaven and was no hell, just simply in this life alone, it would be worth, if I had 10,000 lives, I'd give every single one of them to Jesus Christ. What a fool I would be not to give my life to Jesus Christ. To come to Christ and to believe in Christ, you will never hunger within your soul again. Either Jesus is a truth teller or this is a pack of lies and there's nothing in between. And then he says he will never thirst. Do you see that in verse 35? It's another strong negative meaning an emphatic positive that he who believes in me will be entirely, eternally satisfied, will be filled with pleasures forevermore, will never again be starving for what only God can give him, will never again be empty, will never again suffer uh, inward gnawing. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once preached a sermon entitled, The Sip That Satisfies Forever. From John 7, verse 37. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers, rivers of living water. For this he spake not of himself, but of the Spirit that would come into this world. It's not a slow drip of water that's trickling through your life. It's not coming into your life through a straw or even a hose. It's rivers in the plural. Rivers of living water that are flooding your soul, like a spiritual tsunami. Grace upon grace. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. John 4, verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Listen, if people truly understood this, they would be running to Christ. They wouldn't just be coming to Christ. They would be fleeing to Christ. They would be sprinting to Christ. They would crawl across a desert. They would swim across an ocean. They would do whatever is necessary to have this living water gushing up to eternal life within me. Jesus said this to the woman at the well, that there could be in her a well that would never run dry. Finally, number six, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. 
Not only is Jesus the bread of life, He is the only bread of life. Look at it again one last time. I am, what's the next word? The, definite article, the. Not a bread of life, as if there's several different breads of life on the shelf from which you can select. I am the bread of life, and the definite article, the, signifies the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only bread that gives life. I was visiting today with the D'Souza's, and they were talking of India, to me about India, and the thousands of gods that there are supposedly for the Indian people and their Hinduism and all of their lost, bankrupt religions. That it's fine to talk about Jesus as long as He is just one of several different gods, one of many different options and that, that are available to someone. You worship your God and I'll worship Jesus and we're all just worshipers of God. But as soon as you speak of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, that He with the Father and the Son are the only God that there is, and every other God is a demon-inspired religion that leads to the bowels of hell, that's where the conflict begins. But that is what you and I believe as Christians and as believers. Proverbs 14, verse 12, There is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the end of death. There are many roads to hell. There is only one road to heaven. And Jesus has an exclusive monopoly on the road to heaven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I have translated that from the original Greek, and this is how it reads. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus said what he meant and meant what he said. This is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. I am the bread of life. And he says, he who comes to me, he who believes in me, not in religion, not in ritual, not in rules, not in anything in this world, not in marriage, not in business, not in school, not even in church, not even in ministry. We must come to Jesus Christ alone. Solas Christos. Christ alone. Not Jesus and the church, not Jesus and good works, not Jesus and the Virgin Mary, not Jesus and the sale of indulgences, not Jesus and the treasury of merit, not Jesus and relics, not Jesus and church membership, not Jesus and baptism, not Jesus and last rites, not Jesus and marriage, but Jesus alone. No one else and nothing else died for your sins, but Christ alone. All other bread is spiritual junk food. 
and is the poison of the devil to damn souls. The philosophies of this world, the ideologies, and all of the world religions of this world are toxic, are poisonous foods that kill and damn the soul. They bring no salvation. They bring no satisfaction. They bring no substance. Only Jesus saves. Only Jesus satisfies. Only Jesus sustains and strengthens. And at the end of the day, this may be the most controversial thing that you and I believe. There are all kinds of hot topics that are out there. From transgender bathrooms to homosexual agendas to abortion, on and on and on. Those are all peripheral issues. At the heart of the controversy of Christianity is the offense of the cross. And it is that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I had a newspaper reporter once contact me and want to do an interview as I was going through a controversial time of ministry. Want to know what did I believe about the sovereignty of God? What, I, what did I believe about predestination? What did I believe about all kinds of doctrines of grace that are counterintuitive to the carnal mind? And when the interview was finished, I said to this newspaper reporter, all that I've just said to you is really of secondary controversy. What is of primary controversy is that I believe and that I preach what Jesus said, that He is the only way to heaven. And I don't even believe that everyone who believes in the doctrines of grace is going to heaven. So have you believed in Jesus Christ? Have you come to Christ by faith? Have you left the world behind? Have you turned your back on this evil world system? Have you turned completely to Christ? Have you taken a decisive step of faith and entrusted all that you are to the Lord Jesus Christ and taken Him unto yourself as you would take bread and eat it as you would take water and drink it. He alone is God in human flesh who has come to seek and to save that which is lost. What a powerful first I am statement that Jesus Christ is making. Tomorrow morning we will look at I am the light of the world. And he who believes in me will not walk in darkness. And it will stand on the shoulders of this I am and extend even further. So what a start. What a start for our conference. When you come to the end of your life and when you come to Jesus Christ your life truly begins.
Without this bread, you have no life. You have only an empty, hollow existence. But when you take this bread and you eat it by faith, you have true life that only God can give to you. You have far more than a legal standing. You have the life of God within your soul. Let us pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this extraordinary claim that Jesus has made. And we stand in awe of him that he would so humble himself as to come all the way down to the depths of this world in order to lay hold of us and lift us up to the heights of heaven. Father, we praise you that you would send him on such a mission. And Lord Jesus, we praise you for your humility, that you would submit and surrender your will to the will of the Father and to come on, come into this world and become part of the human race, yet without sin, so that you might redeem us from the curse of the law and bring your life into our empty dead soul. Father, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.